Singers such as Rosa Poncel, Enrico Caruso, Francesco Tamagno, Ferruccio Ferlinetto, and Dolores Zajic have given definitive performances of Verdi's late works, from the first Otello in 1887 through the present day. What can their recordings tell us about the evolution of Verdi in singing and career-making moments on the opera stage? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. On February 5, 1887, Francesco Tamagno became the first tenor to sing the title role of Verdi's Otello. He would go on to sing several Verdi roles at the Metropolitan Opera and lived long enough to leave us a piece of his legacy on recordings. Today, Met Radio commentator Ira Siff gives us a thrilling panoramic view of Verdi All-Stars from the past to the present in the final installment of his popular lecture series. Good morning. Uh, so today, I feel kind of sad because we're reaching the end of our, uh, our little Verdi all-star exploration. And we're going to uh, take a final look today at some of the singers who've appeared at the Met uh, during different eras as we deal with Verdi's later works, Mbalo and Mascara through Otello. Unfortunately, Falstaff did not make the cut <laughs> just because of time. Uh, but we have some uh, fantastic uh, recordings for you today, real treasures that span the period from 1903 to 1991. Last week, we ended with Verdi's somber masterpiece, Simon Boccanegra. Boccanegra was followed by Un in Mascara, one of those Verdi operas that ran afoul of the censors, uh, the King of Sweden being changed to the governor of Boston so it could reach the stage. In subsequent years, the locale has shifted back and forth between Sweden and Boston, depending upon who is the director. Uh, Balo bowed at the Met in 1889 and was sung, as everything was at that time, in German. Uh, the cast was headed by Lily Lehmann. The distinguished critic, W.J. Henderson, had this to say about Balo's arrival at the Met. said, to be sure, the familiar suavity of La Bella Lingua Toscana had been replaced by the unyielding consonants of the Vaterland. <laughs> uh, and the vocal duties of the evening were assigned to ladies and gentlemen whose earnest devotion to dramatic truthfulness on the opera stage is beyond question, but whose skin as vocalist, pure and simple, is not quite equal to that of the Latins. It was not such a presentation of Verdi's opera as we should have looked for in the brave days of old, when every ornament would have been elaborated with devoted care and every high note prolonged with passionate intensity. But it was a production much more satisfactory to the musical tastes of today, which regards the opera as something greater than a mere concourse of sweet sounds. As the review goes on, and reading between the lines, it sounds like an altogether worthy production that left everyone feeling it had present, uh, been presented earnestly, but still craving the prolonged high notes and Italian outpourings so exciting and so necessary in Verdi. But by 1903, Bala was in Italian again at the Met, and from 1905, the tenor role of Ricardo, governor of Boston, was in the hands of Enrico Caruso much to everyone's delight, and Mr. Henderson reported that the famous tenor arrived in full command of his vocal resources. Not at any previous time in the course of this season had he sung with greater plentitude or beauty of tone. The broad lyric phrases of Verdi's music were delivered with splendid effect. Mr. Rothier and Mr. Zegarola appeared as that remarkable pair of political conspirators, Tom and Sam. They looked quite deadly. After the death of Caruso, Balo appeared uh, and disappeared until 1940 when a new production starred Yussi Bierling, Zinka Milanov, and the debutante baritone Alexander Zved. Virgil Thompson, another critic who's fun to read, 
had this to say. Zinka Milanov, the soprano heroine, has a voice of great power, range, and beauty. It's particularly lovely when she sings softly. She has a tremolo when she sings loud. At her tremolo's worst, she sings off-key. At its best, she does a pure whole-tone shake, or even one of a minor third that sounds as if she were singing double stops. Her acting last night was of the vaguest. Her costume in the gallows scene, a paniered pyramid in which she could only flutter like a gigantic snowflake. Yussi Burling, as the tenor king, interpreted his role with dignity and some style, if no passion. Alexander Sved got the evening's biggest hand for his rendition of the famous Airy Two. His voice is smooth, though a little mealy-mouthed. I think he opens his jaw too wide. His rhythm gave the conductor, Mr. Panitza, many a bad moment. Stella Andreva, as the coloratura page boy Oscar, sang lightly and accurately. Her acting needs some firm correcting. She ogled and swished incessantly. Many distinguished casts have graced Balo. It's a tough opera to pull off, though. Uh, in my early opera-going days, I remember performances of great excitement with stars like Carlo Bergonzi and Leonie Riesenick as the lovers, and luxury casting like Annalisa Rotenberger as Oscar. Luciano Pavarotti, of course, made a specialty of the role of Ricardo, if we're in Boston, or Gustavo, if we're in Sweden. The 1980 Met production put him in Boston, and in 1990, he was in Sweden, and his co-star in Sweden was Aprile Milo, reigning Verdi soprano of the Met at that time. Uh, Milo never failed to bring the house down with her moving rendition of Emilia's Act Three aria, Moroma Prima Grazia, which we're going to view now on video. When I was still directing opera, I worked with Aprile. I directed her in Tosca, Adriana Le Couvreur, La Gioconda, and La Fanciulla del West. And she had a preference for being staged on the floor whenever possible, because she said in that position it gave her the most comfortable support. For this aria of pleading, of course, the floor is the appropriate place to be, and that's where we'll find her. We don't see, uh, we see, but we don't hear from, rather, Leo Nucci, who is in the scene with her as her uh, outraged husband, and Maestro Levine conducts.
1918, a 21-year-old soprano who had never appeared on any opera stage anywhere before found herself on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera, co-starring in the company's first ever production of La Forza del Destino with Enrico Caruso. No pressure. <laughs> While the critics acknowledged that Rosa Panzel, who only nine months before had still been appearing in vaudeville as one of the two Panzillo sisters, needed some time to mature into a great artist, they all were succumbed to her beautiful voice and her presence and declared her debut a triumph. Panzel sang 116 performances of seven Verdi roles at the Met, plus two of the Verdi Requiem. A decade after her debut, Panzel went into the RCA recording studio and made a number of legendary recordings, among her most famous. Out of these sessions came a ravishing La Vergine degli Angeli from La Forza del Destino with Panzel, the Met Chorus, and the great Ezio Pinza as Padre Guardiano. Pinza himself sang 153 performances of five Verdi roles at the Met plus one Requiem. So in this recording, we have two Verdi all-stars from 1928 joining forces.
Now on the list of many people's favorite operas, including mine, Don Carlo has had a rather spotty history at the Met until fairly recent years. It didn't appear until 1920. Surprisingly, then, in the full five-act version, albeit in Italian, Don Carlo was originally written as Don Carlos in French uh, for Paris. And uh, at the Met, it premiered in Italian, starring Giovanni Martinelli, Rosa Panzel, Giuseppe De Luca, Marguerite de Matzenauer, and Adamo di Dor. Not too shabby. But it disappeared for three decades until it was presented in a new production as the inaugural presentation of Rudolf Bing's tenure as general manager. And it was, by the way, telecast, but apparently lost. This was in the four-act Italian version, shorn of the opening Fontainebleau scene, not to be confused with the hotel in Florida. <laughs> and uh, that scene was restored uh, in the John Dexter production by Maestro Levine in 1979. Uh, although Bing championed the opera, and for years it served up some great Verdi singing at the Met, Sieppi's debut as Filippo, Grace Bumbry's debut as Eboli, it has been the five-act Italian version and the advent of super titles giving the audience an idea of the depth of characterization in the supreme Verdi masterpiece that's really won the hearts of Met audiences. It's perhaps Verdi's richest score in terms of character portraits. In recent years, we've been treated to one of the great mature Verdi singer-actors in Ferruccio Furlanetto in a number of Verdi roles at the Met, Fiesco in Bocanegra, uh, Silva in Ernani, and most of all, perhaps, Filippo in Don Carlo. Frolinetto possesses an enormous intelligence with which he invests all his roles. He still has a flawless legato as he turns 68 next week and is an expressive physical actor. But today, I would like to turn the clock back a bit and bring us Frolinetto's first Filippo from 1986 when he was thrown into a Fancarian Salzburg production, presumably at the last minute as a replacement although his characterization has perhaps grown over the years uh, in terms of depth, the combination of his vocal gold at 37 and the depth of heartbreak he's able to portray in this great Shena El La Jamai Mamo make this a fascinating document, really a must-see and hear. One of the Met still great Verdi all-stars, Ferruccio Frolinetto here as King Philip. Oh. 
1968, uh, Shirley Verrett made her Met debut as Carmen. Then she sang Eboli. Uh, you know, in France, there was a fantastic singer in the 19th century uh, named Cornelie Falcon. And she was uh, something of a mezzo and a soprano. And an entire vocal category was invented for her, known as the Falcon. Meyer Beer wrote some great roles for her. Shirley Verrett was such a singer, a mezzo and a soprano. She sang Dalila and Lady Macbeth, Amneris and Tosca. And she sang everything with her individual timbre, total commitment, and her great artistry. I will never forget Shirley Verrett's Ebelie. I was astonished at the ease with which she handled the range of the role, the dramatic involvement she displayed while singing so flawlessly. Three years after her Met debut, the BBC had Verrett perform Ebelie's great aria, Odon Fatale, in which she curses the beauty that has gotten her into deep trouble. And she resolves to save Carlo from execution. So here is a Verdi all-star, a great Lady Macbeth, a great Adzucena, a great Amneris, and as well, a great Eboli, Shirley Verrett. <laughs> Come on! 
can hear it like that ever again. <clears throat> After Don Carlo, Verdi was courted again by the Opera in Paris to create another grand opera. His previous experiences there with uh, Le Vepre Sicilien and Don Carlo uh, caused him never to want to return. Everything took too long. There were too many cooks meddling in the creative process for his taste. And the formula of a five-act grand opera with a ballet uh, required by the opera, Verdi felt to be stifling. So when Camille Deloc, one of the librettists of Don Carlo, asked him about another opera, Verdi refused. Then Deloc asked him to provide a hymn for the opening of the new Cairo Opera House, uh, and Verdi refused. He said, uh, I do not compose uh, pieces of occasion. Deloc then visited Verdi at his home in Santa Agata, he wouldn't give up, and he proposed the idea of Aida. Uh, a scenario had been created by the French Egyptologist Auguste Mariette, who was in the employ of the uh, Khedive of Egypt. The Khedive wanted a Verdi opera, a new Verdi opera, to open the Cairo Opera House. Aida did not, in fact, open the Opera House, nor did it commemorate the opening of the Suez Canal, as uh, used to be believed. Uh, due to delays of various sorts, it was Rigoletto that ended up opening the new opera house in 69, 1869. And the canal opened in 1870. Aida um, ended up uh, premiering at the Cairo Opera House in 1871. Verdi was not in attendance. He believed the real premiere to be the La Scala production the following year, starring Teresa Stoltz, for whom he had composed the role. He also composed the Verdi Requiem for her. It's interesting, after turning down the Paris Opera, Verdi ended up composing a grand opera with a ballet. But never mind that. It was an instant hit, and its Cairo premiere and its La Scala premiere. And in fact, although we refer to Rigoletto, Trovatore, and Traviata as the big three Verdi operas, it is Aida that leads in the number of performances at the Met above <coughs> those three. Um, and only below now, uh, La Boheme, which has creeped up and gotten <laughs> the number one position, probably thanks to Mr. Zeffirelli. Verdi uh, did supervise the 1872 premiere of the work. And uh, the music is a marvelous blend of romanticism and exoticism. Now, exotica is something that Verdi had not done before Aida and didn't do it after Aida. We look forward for that to Puccini, an Italian opera to Puccini, uh, Madame Butterfly and, uh, and Turandot, uh, Verdi had, in a way, a greater task than Puccini. Rather than pull harmonies and melodies from authentic Asian music, as Puccini did, Verdi had to invent ancient Egyptian music because nobody knew what it sounded like. Verdi evokes a bygone time, a specific place, and a culture by creating this ambiance from scratch. We witness uh, one of the powerhouse Verdi all-stars from our time, the astonishing Dolores Zajic. Zajic has her own individual vocal method, a huge voice, rather dark at the bottom of the head voice, but very easy and bright in the upper register with a big, powerful chest voice extension at the bottom. This ease at both ends of the range has made Dolores an ideal exponent of three major Verdi roles, Azucena in Trovatore, Eboli in Don Carlo, and Amneris in Aida. 
Delora has sung 169 performances of Verdi, uh, four Verdi roles at the Met, and she's still going strong. She'll be back next season as the mother in Hansel and Gretel. In this, uh, that'll be interesting. In this snippet from um, in 1989 Met Aida, conducted by Maestro Levine, we witnessed Delora in full cry at the conclusion of the great judgment scene in Act Four where other mezzos are often pooping out by this point, Dolores sounds like she could finish it and do it all over again. Back in time just four years, and in the opera just one scene, we're in 1985, and we're on the Nile, and it is uh, one of the greatest moments in Met history. It is possible that no Met Verdi artist is more identified with a single role than the beloved Leontine Price is with Aida. Miss Price uh, put it herself, Aida is my voice, and my voice is Aida. And although she made her debut as Leonora in Il Trovatore, not wanting to begin her tenure at the Met typecast, it was the role of Aida, which she sang 42 times over 25 years in the house, and the role of Aida with which she so memorably left the house in her 1985 Farewell to Opera. Turning 58 years of age, Leontine Price offered a lesson in vocal control with her O Patria Mia, inspiring an ovation that was as long as the aria. 
Uh, we're going to watch the breathtakingly beautiful Opatria Mia from her farewell performance, so filled with emotion, channeled through the sound uh, Maestro Levine conducts.
<coughs> after Aida, Verdi seemed to be in official retirement himself. Or so he thought. His publisher, Ricordi, had other ideas. He got the maestro together with the younger Arrigo Boito, who had, in his impetuous youth, put Verdi down as old hat decadent Italian art. Now gaining wisdom through maturity and the hard lesson of trying to unsuccessfully do himself what Verdi had done so successfully, Boito was in awe of the older composer. Uh, the plan was to have the two collaborate on a revision of uh, Verdi's favorite black sheep opera, Simon Bocanegra, and give it a second more successful life with a La Scala revival. Bo, uh, Boito uh, not only did a smashing job as librettist for that project, but he got Verdi interested in composing an opera based on Shakespeare's Othello. Verdi saw this uh, younger poet composer as a man who possessed the intellectual ability uh, to condense Shakespeare for the opera stage, and so Othello was born. And of course, after that Falstaff with the two of them again, uh, extending Verdi's career by 22 years after Aida. The first Otello was Francesco Tamagno, who lived just long enough and retained his voice just long enough to record Otello's great death scene, Nun Mitema, in 1904, 17 years after the opera's premiere. The following year, Tamagno died at 55. Tamagno himself sang three heroic Verdi roles during his Met tenure, Otello, of course, being one of them. We're so fortunate to have the role's creator documented in this death scene from the opera. So here's Francesco Tamagno in the death scene from Otello. Morta, morta, 
1952, a, a diminutive vocal giant uh, entered the picture in the form of Mario Delmonico. Through the 1950s, Delmonico owned the role at the Met and everywhere else. Uh, sometimes his singing was criticized as crude, hell-bent on volume, uber alles. Sometimes he pushed his resources so hard they failed him. But others, as in the Mets' 1958 revival of Otello, uh, Delmonico found the perfect balance. Uh, the, critical, the critic in musical America put it this way, Mario Delmonico has grown astonishingly in the role of the Moor from the moment of the difficult cold entrance on Esultate with its high B. He is the alternatingly regal brooding, tender, sickly, jealous, ferocious Moor of Shakespeare's creation, and he's brought an added dignity to his performance, a restraint in the frenetic moments, and a vocal refinement and nuance which are highly commendable. We're going to turn to the audio recording of the 1958 Met revival I just mentioned to hear Otello's heartbreaking monologue, Dio mi potevi scaliar, from Act Three, declaimed in Delmonico's inimitable fashion crowned here with an endless thrilling high B. The conductor of that excerpt is met broadcast is uh, Fausto Clavis. Good old days. <laughs> so our final excerpt uh, 
is uh, with two artists uh, who were unforgettable in Otello for, for me. Uh, after uh, Delmonico and before Placido Domingo, James McCracken owned the role at the Met. His voice was not conventionally beautiful. It had a dark, hooded, throaty quality that could sound odd in most roles, but in Otello, the tenor found a part that suited perfectly his individual sound and gave vent to his emotional power as a singing actor. When the production premiered McCracken's Desdemona was Gabriela Tucci. Renata Tebaldi joined him for her angelic Desdemona and then Zinka Milano for her stately characterization. I'll never forget one performance in which Zinka was thrown to the ground by Otello during the Act Three duet and four handmaidens magically appeared from the wings to help her up. <laughs> Later, during the same show, when Otello was strangling her, Zinka suddenly sat up in bed to pull her nightie back down over her ankles and then laid down to die. <laughs> first things first. But there was one soprano only who could match McCracken's dramatic intensity and abandon in this opera, and that was Leonie Riesenich. Dramatic conviction is an essential feature in the equipment of a Verdi prima donna. Sometimes it can even take precedence over vocal beauty, agility, Italianate style, and other qualities we associate with these heroines that we've been watching for these weeks. In 1959, Maria Callas was scheduled to sing Lady Macbeth in the first ever Met production of Macbeth opposite Leonard Warren. Uh, Rudolf Bing fired her due to disagreements, replaced her with the Austrian soprano Leonie Riesenich, uh, unknown to New York audiences being cleverly planted someone in the audience so that when Riesnick made her first entrance as Lady Macbeth, there was a plant who cried brava callas. <laughs> Knowing the American love of the underdog, Bing figured that this was a good move. It was unnecessary. As Leone herself later recalled, she heard there was a loud comment, so she hurled out her first high C, held on to it, and that was that. <laughs> Riesenich's art wasn't only about her sensational high notes, although they were sensational, as you'll hear. It was about total belief, conviction, and a healthy portion of sheer dementia. She, she was incapable of walking through a part or even through a moment in a part. Uh, her debut marked the beginning of a 36-year-old love affair between her and the Met audience. Leonie's Desdemona was so unconventional by the standards of the Tibaldi and Delmonico camp that she actually received death threats if she persisted in performing it. At a performance I attended that was incredibly exciting, Leone made a curtain speech in which she said, if you don't like me, don't come to hear me, but please don't threaten to kill me. <laughs> it became so scary that Rudolf Bing banned the standees because he decided the standees were the source of all this trouble. Uh, for the broadcast that followed that Saturday, they were banned. And from that broadcast of February 15, 1964, my 18th birthday, do the math, for our final selection, uh, we're going to hear a portion of the Act Three duet with Leonie Riesenich as Desdemona and James McCracken as Otello. Leonie was terrified, bewildered and, and as, a, as Desdemona in this scene, and as Otello rails at her, producing her first tears, it was difficult for the audience not to cry as well. At the conclusion of this scene, the audience always exploded in demonstrative applause, as you'll hear on this broadcast, even with the standees banned from the house, even normal people responded to Leone. <laughs> so here's a different kind of Verdi soprano, just as potent as those who float all those heavenly lines of Cantilena, but more oriented toward expression through passion and vocal intensity. In this scene, of course, as Otello keeps insisting that Desdemona produce that fateful fazzoletto, the handkerchief, the intensity builds to a fever pitch.
candido giglio nella tua fronte scritto che non sei forse un vil cortigiano So, thank you all <laughs> for joining, and um, maybe we'll see you next week. That was Ira Sif in the final lecture from his Verdi All-Star series. Ira is always an audience favorite here at the Guild, and we are delighted to be able to share his sold-out course with you, our podcast listeners. If you enjoy our podcast programming, please consider leaving us a review in iTunes or send us an email at info at metguild.org. We always love hearing thoughts and feedback from our listeners. We'll be back with you on July 12, 2017 with a brand new episode all about baritones. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.